This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys. Adapted from his book Pedal Power, Roy Sinclair and his partner Haliko are seeing her homeland by cycling Japan from top to tail. A photojournalist at the press in Christchurch, Roy, then head of New Zealand's chapter of the World Peace Bell, sought a replica bell to site at Christchurch Botanic Gardens. Don't trust what anyone says. Harlequin finds that, and so do I. We're about to ignore official advice offered at an official information centre, which is very un-Japanese of us. Our inquiry has been about cycling over the 1,300-metre Amo Pass to see Shirakawago village, famous for its thatched buildings. We know heavy rain will close to all traffic the roadway, Yet the information centre assures us the route is impassable by bicycle, too steep, a gravel surface that even motor vehicles need navigational aids to cross. It sounds too dramatic to believe. We take stock of our situation. Sitting in a cafe, not unlike any we might find in France and other European countries, in the 1950s style of a coffee and cake shop, Harlico and I compare thoughts. Our maps show the road is sealed for a start, so that's no barrier. Nor the suggestion about navigational aids. All Japan's roads are so well identified by their route number, any thought of us getting lost is clearly bollocks. Even Harlico concludes the official spiel is to fob off bicycle travellers. We'll give it a go regardless, once the rain lets up. It does. So we set off in the morning along rural roads with little motor traffic, becoming steep on a twisting gradient ten kilometres to the top of the Amo Pass. It's a day to treasure, sheer joy in the pleasure of cycling, justifying all the difficult days behind us when we wondered what we are doing here. We feel free that we'll achieve something worthwhile today. We rocket down the other side of the pass through cooling forest to join tourists on the Tenbodai lookout, commanding a view of Shirakawago, which has UNESCO World Heritage status. We find out why as we ride around the village lanes. Here are about 170 thatched farmhouses, sheds and barns, most of them built about the old-style Minshuku farmhouses where guests may stay not more than one night, though they may stay longer by moving to one of the other Minshuku in the village. It costs more than we can afford to pay this accommodation if we're to last the distance, so we inquire about renting a, a, a campsite. That will be about 50 New Zealand dollars each. No way, says Harlequin. She refuses to be robbed in her own country. 
We sense cyclists are second, even third-class citizens when it comes to travelling in posh places. The Japanese perceive we're trying to travel on the cheap. In fact, our three-month journey, we're putting a lot of money into the Japanese economy, more so than if we were well-heeled guests on a shorter stay in plush hotels of Tokyo and Osaka. As a true traveller, Haruko's determined to resist the relatively high-scale fees of the tourist industry. She spots an ample bus shelter on the outskirts of the village, enclosed, clean. It has benches and a wide table. It's fit for purpose in winter, when this region is under metres of snow. There's a clean public toilet nearby. Spreading out our convenience store goodies, we dine and relax in relative comfort with earmats, sleeping bags, safe beside our bicycles. Our improvised dwelling has even a beautifully crafted thatched roof, all for free and 73 kilometres closer to our destination in the south of Japan. Did we have unexpected visitors in the night? In the morning, as as we tidied up, I noticed Japanese guys gathered by the car park. They greet us with good morning in English, wearing cheeky grins, which raises suspicion. No sooner do I get on to ride, my back tyre goes flat. I offload the panniers, remove the wheel, and from the tyre extract a long, thin nail. I'm sure someone planted it. It's our only puncture of the ride through Japan. We come well equipped for running repairs. I've always associated the despairing cry of large black crows with the sparse hot zone of Australia. Now we hear the crow's call rising over the Shokawa River's rush to fill over 20 dams downstream that irrigate, control floods and generate hydroelectric power. In rain, we cycle along a road passing these lakes the dams create and envy those who ride safe and dry along an ancient railway in a quaint carriage behind a motor train. Here, our surroundings are pleasing to the ear and eye, but inevitably a river runs closer to civilization, meeting more people. We come upon a Korean, a cyclist, as we are yet. More than that, Baek Shung-cha edits a magazine, Bicycle Life. His plan takes him to places with historic, friendly association for Koreans in Japan. On his journey, however, he's had a crash, causing a nasty gash on one arm, landing him in a flooded river, drowning his camera, his bike, and almost himself. Volcanic eruptions left the nation of Japan pitted with chasms, mountain passes, and rivers pacified by storage lakes for hydroelectric power generation. Engineering experts sorted out the tricky hairpin bends by which a web of roads penetrate the wild recesses of Honshu, attracting, in particular, tourists. Haluko, my partner, who is Japanese, is seeing sights and sides of Japan she never knew as a child. A lot is due to the bicycle as our chosen means of conveyance. But there is a downside. We're crossing the Misaka Pass on a narrow, winding road cluttered with trucks, too close for our comfort. 
It's worse when we find out why. There's a new route, an expressway built especially for heavy traffic to avoid congestion of an otherwise busy roadway. Yet, by the many trucks we meet on Misaka Pass, it's still as nerve-breaking as ever. The trouble is, we're told, the truckies work for companies whose bosses give them the cash to cover the road toll charges to access the new route. But these drivers, rather than pay the tolls, are pocketing the money instead. That's why such trucks are creating chaos for hapless cyclists like us. Travelling the same minor road as they do makes Misaka Pass a worry to us. For a detour to a wonderfully restored mountain village at Kumagawa makes up for it. Long ago, Kumagawa lay on a traditional trade route between the Sea of Japan and Kyoto. Long ago, Kumagawa lay on a traditional trade route between the Sea of Japan and Kyoto, carrying the mackerel catch to the capital. Haluko is in her element here. An elderly gent shows us through a magnificent library. She loves books. Outside, she delights in meeting by chance a couple, quite eccentric in their own way, whose claim to fame is inventing a machine to wash the dirt from the kumara tuber, the humble sweet potato, yellow inside. It grows on land less than ideal for rice. During World War II, the military encouraged farmers to grow it as a summer crop on land less suited to rice. It helped feed the nation, who acquired a taste for the hardy kumara. Such a precious crop should be well preserved for the market, without dirt clinging to its skin. So, their story goes, the farmer invents a machine. It works on water. Typical of mountain villages, there's fresh water flowing in concrete channels through the centre. Thus access to water is easy either side, just below land level. Having ample rainfall, villagers rely on having water to irrigate their crops and meet household needs. Haliko enjoys their chat in Japanese, so I've yet to hear what becomes of their kumara washing invention. Later, I learn how the husband gets the idea of a six-sided open wooden cage set spinning on a bamboo rod fixed across the water race, where a current runs rapidly as it cascades through Kumagawa. Eventually, having attracted a crowd, he extracts his contraption, opening it so onlookers may see for themselves it works that the tubers will come out clean, ready to cook. The couple confess, amid great laughter, on opening the wooden cage, that their kumara washing machine works, <laughs> but too well, anticipating the kumara will come out clean, the farmers confront the startling reality, that the kumara are no longer there, or gone, gone. While on the topic of food, there's a convenience store that serves fish and chips, sampling it in Japan for the first time. We're surprised to receive them, wrapped in stiff paper, forming the shape of an ice cream and about the same size. Its wrapper makes it look like a newspaper, its front page printed with a history of the potato. In Japan, it will never vie with rice as a staple crop, yet the potato grows where other crops won't in winter. Our purchase of fish and chips yields us several sizable chips with three pieces of fish, each the size of an old penny.
Wishy desu. Much better than New Zealand fish and chips, says Harako, lying. I reckon there's none but the English who could better make fish and chips than New Zealand's variety. Stays for ages, piping hot inside its newspaper wrapping. Yet Japanese are masters at reinventing anything and everything. In most cases it works magnificently. The tiny Sony radio and the Walkman are excellent examples. However, there are some things of British origin, fish and chips included, cannot be reinvented or even slightly improved upon. We cycle on to the sea of Japan coast, where a long sand spit across a bay is a novelty known for centuries as a path to the sky, because, viewed upside down and between one's legs, the sand spit appears to float in air above vantage points. Not wishing to miss out on this optical illusion, I try to achieve the right stance. But overbalance, bringing ridicule upon myself. It's no good to make an idiot of oneself in front of Japanese. The narrow sand spit extends almost four kilometres, blinking the sides of the bay along a cycle path passing through pine forest to where a swing bridge lets vessels in and out of the bay. We stay at the Amano Hashidati Youth Hostel with its view of the setting sun on a coast where, come dawn tomorrow, flocks of big black cormorants will rise at dawn. When the time comes, we decide to sit out in the rain and catch up on email. I learn Christchurch has re-elected as mayor Gary Moore, which is pleasing. He's the patron of our New Zealand World Peace Bell Association that lobbies for a peace bell in the Christchurch Botanic Gardens. As soon as the rain ceases, we're on our bikes for 60 kilometres of uncluttered road till we roll into Kinosaki. As warm rain begins to soak us, we join locals sheltering under a roof while dangling their feet in a river of warm spa water. We're in the main street, Tudor-style buildings curving away from the train station. Kinosaki looks like a great town to spend some time in, so we take a reasonably priced hotel room, the last going in town. The call on accommodation is due to it being a long weekend when Japanese like to relax and take up old traditions. We see them staying at a traditional Japanese inn, taking to the streets in colourful kimonos, walking in wooden sandals with a kind of shuffling elegance. There's a variety of bars and cafes. Farther down the coast at Mitokusan Sanbutsuji, footwear emerges as an issue. Leaving the bicycles, we're paying the fee to go up the mountains to a temple near the base of Mount Mituku. When the cashier comments that he doesn't approve of what Haliko is wearing on her feet. A pair of genuine walking sandals designed for the outdoors. He doesn't think they're safe and offers, for 500 yen, about six New Zealand dollars, sandals to hire. But they're merely flimsy thongs. I think it's strange, even irresponsible, to suggest to be safe footwear for the steep track. Is this just a way to extract money? We set off past a tiny temple the size of a respectable doll's house. This temple, we're told, is dedicated to bring prosperity to merchants. The track steepens, so we cling to hanging vines, 
and then a rusty chain to, to climb almost vertically up uh, over a huge boulder by the second temple. Much larger than the first, this temple is supposed to bring blessings to women who are mothers to many children. We reach the belfry of the temple bell, wondering how monks may have raised such a big bell to the ringing place on a ridge. How did they do this? We strike it with the large wooden ringer to hear its mellowed echoes ripple in the surrounding hills, a sound which Christchurch might entertain. We continue upward, clinging to rock hanging above a precipice. We trust our weight to a rusty chain. It takes us higher. Suddenly we reach our goal, dripping from the foliage outside, into this natural cleft in the mountain cliff. Buddhist pilgrims long ago find inspiration in an ascetic lifestyle. No longer is this sacred place inhabited. Yet for a fee, people like ourselves continue to admire how well-preserved it is, still standing on a platform resting on wood stilts wedged into the cleft of the cave. The monks over fourteen centuries have kept this precarious retreat of Nagiridu looking out on a land often isolated from the rest of humanity. Modern Japan experiences the curse of pollution. Like other developed nations, it struggles to house its citizens, to satisfy soaring demands to cater for cars, improve public transport, keeping space for recreation, let alone preparing for earthquakes and floods. But here, surrounded by nature, inaccessible in winter, clinging to a mountain, we sense the inner peace that comes to pilgrims reaching Nagiridō or other sacred places. We remember coming once before to this mountain, but in winter's bitter cold, timing our visit to the old monastery then, even given Haliko's enthusiasm, proves too much. I recall her nimble feet kicking at empty air, failing to find the ledge to which to entrust her next step. We gave up that time rather than risk a slip. Now, in warm weather, it's entirely different, and access improved, though not without mishap from time to time. It's astonishing to imagine the challenges confronting those who are first there. For the monks, the cave is crucial to securing their platform high up on the cliff on rock. It's a firm foundation on which to rest strong timbers. Thrust into the cave floor, these support a platform aloft, overhanging the chasm. From above, the Nagiridu Temple shelters from the full force of the elements under a bulge in the cliff. But as to how those medieval Buddhist builders first got onto the cliff to build the monastery, we can't work it out. What's more, their old techniques make this monastery resilient, lasting down the ages, testament to how advanced and skilled was their architecture. I see no way up other than entrusting our weight to rusting chains, and this time succeeding. These days, none of the temples on Mount Mituku are occupied, but someone certainly maintains them. It's a magic atmosphere. The foliage of the forest glistens, dropping drips on unsuspecting city dwellers more used to air-conditioned comfort. This is one of Japan's lesser-known treasures. Here, where there's evidence of Buddhists trekking over steep, narrow trails for more than a thousand years, they shun temptations of our secular society, meditate, 
pray to Buddha, bring solace to the bereaved. Supernatural legend explains the origins of the temple and its name, which translates as, throw into a temple. I'm glad Haliku tells me the story of the mountain and its ancient temple. Time passes quickly, so by the time we make a careful descent, avoiding the slip that put a pilgrim in hospital recently, we're the last down for the day, so the staff who await us below upon seeing us breathe sighs of relief not to be dealing with another mishap. Back on our bikes we delight in our achievement and glide down from the mountain through rural villages in the late afternoon light. As we free wheel, we pass farm workers homeward bound, wheeling barrows carrying tools, produce to take to market tomorrow, perhaps purchasing as a delicacy for dinner tonight Pacific codfish from the fishmonger's van at the junction. To attract customers, music blares from speakers mounted on high posts, treating us to the popular yuka kikoyaki song about crows going to bed in the treetops. Anywhere else it might seem almost childish, but not to New Zealanders who enjoy the rural settings of Tolkien's trilogy The Lord of the Rings, filmed in our landscape. Something similar has a hobbiton aspect to the scenery we see in parts of rural Japan. I wish I could take home some of these folk to discover more about their existence. Haliko comes from close by. As we head down to Kurayoshi, we cycle through her hometown, Totori. Along the route she cycled to school, gliding down the street next to where she used to live. In the city of Kuriyoshi, we share a meal with her old friends. I feel comfortable among Japanese. A man looks closer at the small flag on my shirt, exclaiming, Ah, New Zealand! In good English he said that New Zealand is a country of nature and looks after its environment, while in Japan everything's for decoration, he says. A financial crisis confronts me, as the post office ATM refuses my visa card. Insufficient funds, the screen message reads. I contemplate this unexpected setback. A small <coughs> cough behind me alerts me to the presence, revealed as I turn around, of the post office clerk looking embarrassed. Stack of 10,000 yen in banknotes for the ATM. Ah, so it's not my bank account that's skint, but their bloomin' machine. To go so far on bicycles, it's quite on the cards. Something will go wrong along the way. And it, it does. I'm tired. It's not due to speed. It's in once-fortified Hagi City, where samurai warriors once ruled, the old towns preserved in narrow streets of that era. Yet the city sets aside space for cherry blossoms to bloom in spring, quiet forests on surrounding hills. We've stopped. I'm sitting in the saddle, propping everything up with my foot on the low concrete curb separating the footpath from the carriageway. Then my foot slips. With nothing to restrain it, the loaded bike tumbles unglamorously on top of me. Rather than being a mishap, it's my clumsiness. As I disentangle myself, I notice one leg dripping blood. All I would have wished is to get to the nearby youth hostel, have a shower and an early night. But no, I'm propped up on pure white pillows and sheets in the local medical centre. 
My gashed shin is skillfully stitched by Dr. Koji while nurses soothe my discomfort. They're gentle. Too polite to admit my socks are the most smelly they've come across. Dr. Koji, the clinic owner, takes it in his stride. If you choose this sort of exercise, then you can expect this sort of injury. Despite all the delicate work, his practice charges fees less than would be a ten-minute consultation in New Zealand. We hear another typhoon's bearing down on Japan, not yet upsetting the southwest corner of Honshu. The coast, lightly populated, has rugged offshore islands and sea so clear fishermen comment on it. Detouring along roads reaching to the coastline, we patronise a cafe offering a smorgasbord of fish, including half a fish head, with the eye being the delicacy. I eat it, but without liking the crunch it makes. If the typhoon's keeping its distance, we'll benefit by experiencing the calm of late summer. We stop for ice creams. The storekeeper welcomes us to enjoy relaxing on their seats. Soon a local potter arrives to present us two beautiful mugs he's made. Having seen us from a distance, recognizing me as a foreigner, and wishing to reciprocate that kindness which foreigners heaped upon his daughter to establish a successful dancing career in New York, we wrap the treasures carefully to eventually reach New Zealand intact and appreciated. Evening finds us in a spa town, Kawatana Onsen, where it's natural we spend our last night on the island of Honsu. It's a spa town. We bathe in the onsen and dine out well on our own green tea, soba noodles, thinly sliced beef and other ingredients. The cooking is achieved by heating a pottery roof tile. Everything we could desire except having no place to sleep. Long ago, it would be cause for concern, nothing arranged for where to lay our heads on pillows. Ah, but now in Japan, we're accustomed to seeing all those people, many sleeping in cardboard boxes, even in winter, homeless. I can be homeless the occasional night without qualms, but there's a cosy home awaiting our return to Christchurch. Another bonus to being cycling nomads. All we need is with us on the bikes. It gives a feeling of being self-contained, self-sufficient. We cycle to the railway station. Once the last train arrives at 11.09pm, we'll move in to settle down for the night in our sleeping bags. That's the plan and we're rolling out our gear when there comes a loudspeaker announcement echoing down the deserted platform. Harlequin shoots out of her sleeping bag, alarmed, all caution abandoned. She translates. Roy-san, quick, we must leave immediate. All the station doors will lock automatically in five minutes. We scurry into the night with all our possessions to repack our bicycles just as we hear the roller doors clatter down behind us, imprisoning everything the other side. In darkness now. We resume cycling down the road through sleeping villages, envying those cocooned in comfort behind dim yellow light illuminating their windows. Next station down the line looks doubtful, but three kilometres after that is a station with no doors. They can't lock against access to the platform. Perfect. 
not all that clean, but okay. We spread out on the seats meant for waiting train passengers. I sleep, despite a clanging and and wheezing large drink and nibbles dispensing machine. I've no idea why such technology comes with so much noise. Our day finally finishes. It's a little after midnight. We've cycled just on 100 kilometers for the day. Sleepless nights by firelight The stranger in this town For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.